quick pop-up message here. It just says you've got Riverside open in other tabs. So if you could, if you could maybe try to close those, because okay, once we, yeah, I might like double it or sure. something. We must have stayed open from yesterday. I'll find it. Sounds like you've got at least like a hundred tabs open. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, at all times. Yeah. I've got uh, pet engineers with different solutions on solving it, but it's just the work day it mushrooms. So, uh, yeah, um, it takes a vigilance. I just haven't really applied. Yeah, that's what the like the weekends are for for me. Just like going through all the tabs that have opened throughout the week, reading through some of the articles, or sometimes I'll just like rage yeah. on a Friday night <laughs> after like. My computer just approaches not even working anymore. Just be like, all right, I'm not, I'm closing everything. I'm just restarting the computer and starting from scratch. Like, I just get pissed off. Um, how's it? Hey, hey Jules. Jules. Hey, hey, can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, perfectly. Yeah. Got you. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Great. Appreciate you having on the Fantastic. pod, man. All right. I guess we can start off talking a little bit about the metaverse. Um, so, that was a pretty hot topic a few years ago. Recently, it's kind of receded from the spotlight. However, I feel like it's made a comeback with Apple recently announcing their mixed reality headset, the Vision Pro. And that's kind of got me thinking about what the future of media and entertainment is going to be when it comes to the metaverse largely. Like, are we going to be experiencing the metaverse using these bulky goggles or headsets? Or is it going to be more immersive through these like holographic displays. I know you've kind of talked about these holographic displays and light fields quite a bit, but is that like far out in the future? Future is that something we might be able to see in a in a few years? Yeah. Well, those are both great great topics, and you know the metaverse is something that I've I, you know obviously the classical metaverse is described by Neil Stevenson. Um, and, you know, those who aren't familiar, he, you know, he wrote a book called Snow Crash. That's where the metaverse was coined. Uh, you know, I, I got, got to know him actually over the last six months. Um, and so it's interesting. I think we both share a vision of the metaverse, which is this open spatial web um, that isn't necessarily controlled by any central authority. So obviously that's something that I think decentralization is, you know, critically important for. But, you know, if you look at the um, a lot of the hype around that and NFTs, I think people just just played out that term. I mean, it's almost become a sort of a meaningless thing. But, with, you know, as you pointed out, with Apple entering the market with a new device, and it is, I don't consider the Vision Pro, you know, a VR device or even a mixed reality device in the sense of, of some of these previous efforts. And I've been working, like I worked with John Carmack in the Oculus guys 10 years ago, you know, when they were launching. And, and so I've had a decade of, of experience in the space. I mean, the Apple device is something very different. I mean, it really is a full-on high-end computer on your face with perfect pass-through. So, you know, the default experience isn't that you're in some metaverse virtual world. It's you're in your space. You know, people can see your eyes. You can see everything uh, perfectly. And then, you know, there's an overlay. The overlay could be an equivalent replacement for your TV, your iPad, your books, your phone, your desk. And, uh, and then, you know, it's optional whether you want to fully immerse yourself in anything. But from the perspective of how I see content, you know, for that device playing out, and I think Apple, I mean, they're making a huge bet on this. They spent, you know, close to a decade working on this device. It's going to be a decade uh, before it becomes, you know, at, at the scale and, and, and sort of maturity that you have for the iPhone, right, which is now, you know, something like uh, 16, 17 years in. And I do think that Apple's, you know, version of this is much more about having redefining the way that you think about, you know, personal computing, you know, and then secondly, the experiences that are going to be created for it. 
Um, I think we'll, we'll, you know, we'll be very different and new than the charms we have. It won't just be games or, or interactive experiences. It'll be other things, things that you can create um, with others collaboratively. You know, collaboration is a big part of that device. But just looking at, at some of the initial things, right? I mean, you're going back to you know, iTunes and remastering all of their, you know, th 3D movies. Because now, you know, you don't have to worry about putting on glasses for 3D TV. You have a 3D TV in the glasses and it looks amazing. You know, I mean, I think, uh, you know, Cameron, when he saw Avatar 2 on, on the device, you know, was his feedback was like, oh my God, I've never seen it in any movie theater at this quality, right? So if you think about just watching films and movies and content and, and sort of the commoditization now of larger screen TVs kind of hollowing out the, the movie theater experience, I mean, I think the Vision Pro as a replacement, right, costs about as much as a very high-end, you know, 98-inch TV, for example. I mean, it's it's going to be amazing for that. But I also feel like on the, uh, you know, on, on the metaverse side of things, it's, there's nothing quite like it. You don't, you've never had this perfect position tracking, perfect hand tracking, where you can explore worlds and, and edit them and, you know, collaborate on those things um, with this kind of hardware. Uh, but I do think that there's also a better version of this that doesn't need any glasses, and that's where Lightfield displays come in. Those are being uh, developed by a company called Lightfield Lab. They've got major investment from you know Samsung, LG, and others. They'll be you know, selling their displays to those you know, as OEMs to those uh, TV manufacturers, and you'll see Lightfield displays everywhere. And I think one of those uh, use cases will be on tables and on walls, right? So in those cases. The desktop experience that the Vision OS system provides you, for example, um, where you can look at objects and move them around in your local space, a light field surface could do that without any sort of anything on your head. And that's a huge deal. It, I think, is going to be something that will be hitting consumers probably in seven years' time. You'll see it first um, you know, in museums, in concerts, in location-based entertainment, for sure. Um, and they're going to be rolling those out in 2025. And artists like people uh, who are doing physical, you know, art pieces with digital OLED displays, I mean, it's perfect for him. So I've connected, you know, him to the, uh, like the lab guys. And I just think there's going to be a lot of interesting metaverse applications without any goggles, anything on your face, when light field displays are woven into the fabric of your home, the spaces you have, the objects that you might acquire, you know, it's... It's pretty fascinating stuff. Um, and I think as far as the experience, like we're working with you know, all the studios that, you know, two of them are investors, Disney and Warner Brothers. We've also been working on a project called the Roddenberry Archive, taking all of Star Trek's, you know, history and turning that into a digital twin of itself. Um, and we've, you know, it's, it's had a lot of success as a web portal. Um, I also think it's sort of a good, you know, exemplar for how the metaverse maybe should be considered for something as beloved as, as you know, the story, the vision of Star Trek. Um, and we'll definitely be attempting to bring all those assets to both the Vision Pro and Lightfield displays, you know, coming out in the future. So we're creating a content pipeline that is essentially, you know, thinking about those endpoints very much as we're developing the content now. And at least with the Vision Pro, you know, come early next year, that'll be in, you know, consumers' hands. It'll probably have half a million or so of those out in the first year, but it'll be, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions at some point by the end of this decade. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to those light field displays, mainly because those goggles give me motion sickness. And so the ability to actually like experience the metaverse without having to wear some type of headset seems really appealing. But Jules, you're, you're clearly yeah. a visionary here. Um, and I think the best way to kind of, you know, describe that too is that, you know, over a decade ago, um, you realized that CPU processing was advancing very slowly. Um, and so that kind of led you to develop Octane Render, which was a pioneering software that used GPUs 
um, for rendering rather than CPUs. And this was like 40 times faster um, than the traditional process. Uh, and this really positioned um, a toy at the forefront of the rendering industry and Octane Render became this flagship product that was being used in prominent film and TV studios and by artists, game developers uh, worldwide. And so what I think was also interesting is back in 2010, you actually came up and patented this idea of a token-based distributed rendering platform. And this was even before um, Ethereum came out, which is even more impressive. And it wasn't until 2017 to where this technology was ready that you launched the first distributed rendering platform that ended up being the Render Network. And so one thing I'd love to hear is, you know, what specific challenges back then were you envisioning or, you know, what was the market going to need to where you identified that there was going to be this need for a distributed rendering platform using tokens? Great question. I mean, I, I actually, I remember coming up with, talking to a patent attorney in 2004 about the token-based, you know, token-based billing system for tracing rays. And I think the patent was filed in 2009. So yeah, it was long before there was any cryptocurrency, you know, at all out there. And, and the thinking was, you know, you had SETI at home, um, right, which was, you know, doing, uh, you know, computation of people's machines during screensaver time. And I, I also realized that, you know, I had already developed a lot of technology back, you know, in the early 2000s about putting GPUs on a server and streaming that down to, you know, endpoint devices. And I was realizing that, you know, there's, there, there wasn't really any GPUs on the cloud. That wasn't something that you know, really happened, didn't happen until 2013. And when it did, I went on stage with Jensen, right, the NVIDIA conference to, to announce that Amazon was a close partner of ours. I helped sort of pick those GPU instances on AWS. Um, and, and Eric Schmidt joined our advisory board because when he saw what we were doing there in 2013, he wanted to be part of that and, you know, have us help figure out Google strategy. So I would say that, that, you know, my thinking back then was, you know, we, we don't really have data centers with GPUs. GPUs are fundamentally a common resource because a lot of gamers buy GPUs. I mean, there's just hundreds of millions of high-end GPUs that are out there. And if you want to render content I mean, as fast as GPU rendering is, people always want more, right? I mean, that's, that's something that, that I realized, you know, pretty early on. So coming up with a system where I could monetize a type of workload that I knew was just going to be relevant probably for decades, you know, to come, which was basically tracing rays or running, you know, essentially, um, you know, pieces of a fragment shader on GPU and tokenizing that. That's where the idea came from. Um, and I tried it with, you know, initially with Andy in 2009, I was part of their, their CES keynote with the then CEO talking about having a petaflop of the AMD GPUs because that was to sort of bootstrap the, um, you know, the, the, this idea. But in the end, when, what happened after 2013 and between that year and 2017, when we launched um, you know, Render on, on Ethereum was that um, despite everyone's best efforts, I mean, NVIDIA GPUs are expensive. And, you know, compared to consumer GPU that does the same exact, you know, workload, it's 10 times more expensive. So it was a struggle for AWS and Amazon after that launch to come up with enough GPUs to sustain kind of the workloads that, you know, I think, you know, if you look at something outside of the um, norm, like the Vegas sphere is a great example. Like those graphics are being done on the render network today. And MSG was an investor in Otoy. And in fact, you know, they were doing before this year was even created, they were doing similar size renders. And I remember there was a render job on AWS that would have taken six months and the job was doing three months, right? So, you know, AWS at the time had maybe a few thousand GPUs per region. And we had one or two customers doing these like VR high resolution renders that were just saturating the, the system. And we couldn't support 
you know, millions of users with that. Um, and so we, you know, that's sort of when I realized that, you know, the fact that there's hundreds of millions of, of equally powerful GPUs that are out there on people's machines, people are also making money, right? Mining crypto, you know, mining Ethereum on 1080 Ti. So it was pretty easy when we launched the render network to say, hey, you're going to be paid out um, maybe, you know, a quarter or a fraction of what AWS per dollar charges for this render, but you'll still make more money than mining Ethereum, right? Or mining cryptocurrency. So that was the premise that we launched uh, the render network under. We had advice from um, uh, Brandon Ike, who created JavaScript, basically attention token uh, was his, um, you know, was, was his uh, model that we leveraged to, uh, to sort of map out the render, you know, network initially. And uh, our first customer was John Knoll, the guy that created Photoshop and he's running ILM and he needed to do something for the Hayden Planetarium in 30 minutes. It was taking, you know, 40 hours to render and, you know, it worked. That was our first commercial job. Uh, so that's, that's sort of the, you know, the way that things sort of move towards um, us moving towards a decentralized system. And that was kind of always my plan. I mean, it was almost a blip in the, in the, in the multi-decade journey there that AWS and Google and Azure put GPUs in the cloud, but they don't have enough and they don't have the kind of scale that you would have relative to the amount of GPUs that are latent and that are out there. Um, and there's orders of magnitude more GPUs on, you know, out in the world that are ready to, to render, ready to do compute jobs, ready to do AI workloads than there are in, um, you know, in these centralized data centers. So, you know, the thing is, you know, Google, Azure, I mean, they joined the render network, their GPUs are on the network but they're expensive and not most jobs don't necessarily need those. Um, even studio films like uh, Star Trek Remastered uh, Motion Picture was done in 2021 on you know, end users machines and then encrypted. So that was like a big breakthrough. It's like, you know, well, Hollywood studios actually use decentralized GPUs to securely render, you know, major temple films. And the answer was yes. Uh, and now of course, with the explosion of, of generative AI, text to video is, is you know, you know, turning into something genuinely interesting, text to 3D, those things intermixed with rendering, um, I think are, are going to drive adoption uh, even you know, further into the, uh, into the stratosphere with usage. So there's a lot to unpack there, but that's the uh, summary of the journey here. Yeah, no, <clears throat> that's awesome. I mean, and to, to zoom out a bit to, to use cases, I think, to help some of our, our audience or our listeners understand like what renders being used for. I'm glad you mentioned the sphere in Las yeah. Vegas. I think that's captured a lot of people's attention, just like the, the crazy Twitter videos, you know, both inside, like for live performances is just breathtaking. And then also on the outside, it's like probably one of the coolest ways to advertise, you know, your brand or product. Um, I saw a tweet recently from an artist saying he actually used the render network to, to render a job that's going to be shown on the sphere in Las yeah. Vegas, which I thought was incredible. And yeah. like, it's just, it's great it's been to shown. see that the network can, yeah. can facilitate that level of, um, of, of job. It's like just fantastic. Um, Trevor question for you would be like, what are the kind of the main buckets or segments of, of use cases or types of jobs that the render network is, is facilitating today? Well, we started out really trying to solve for motion graphics artists who, who were creating, uh, motion graphics, be it yeah, simple videos or, or animations or, or NFTs. Um, and, uh, you know, at the start, it was also artists that used Octane Render. So um, that was really what seeded the network. Uh, what it's become more recently is obviously much more than that. Uh, we've added third-party renderers in um, Maxon's products, so Redshift and, and some of its other renderers. Um, and um, also 
you know, you can't ignore the the AI use case that's emerged the the past year and a half or so. And so we, we've gone from a very narrow um, niche at the start to now a, a very broad usage of the network that includes you know multiple renderers as, as well as um, AI jobs actually running on the network. And there was a, a tweet series we we posted yesterday about the the first um, inference of uh, diffusion jobs on, on the network uh, using one of our, our first compute client partners. Um, and it's it's really exciting to us as we see these use cases unfold. Right. And I also saw that artist, the, the same artist that tweeted about the sphere, say he was able to get the job done in five hours versus 95 if he'd, if he'd done it locally. So I guess right. what, you know, fundamentally or structurally about processing that job on the render network, do you think saved him that time? Just like the fact that he had access to more computing power than, than just what's on his machine or, um, yeah, what was, what was, well, it's, that, it's a combination right? that time. So it, it's a combination when you chat to artists, it, it's actually really interesting. They start using the render network. Normally they're in a crunch and they just have to, <laughs> they're sort of out of time and, um, they're blown away at the speed at which it turns it around. And typically there's a light bulb that goes on and they realize, wow, you know, my rig is sitting here unused and, and then, you know, for a period, very used. Uh, what if I turn that model around and just put it on the render network? And um, you you see many of these motion graphics artists able to uh, earn enough render to then pay for their jobs when they have them and really flip the model around from, you know, being one that's purely cost and, and your own electricity to something that's actually paying back some of the, the value of that hardware that you purchased. And And how it works is twofold, right? Depending on which tier you choose, you've got access to higher and higher levels of compute. So most likely there are, um, you know, uh, more powerful rigs on the network than you have. Um, but even if not, there's going to be multiples of those. And that's the great thing about decentralization is we're able to, to facilitate running it across um, you know, hundreds of nodes at once across the globe in, in a way that um, makes it, you know, seconds or minutes as opposed to hours or even days. Following up on that, Trevor... Yeah. Recently, we've seen numerous you know, GPU marketplaces or networks emerge in crypto. And obviously, they're all after GPUs, as these are one of the hottest commodities recently. How do you see you know, Render being able to continue incentivizing these GPU operators to have them supply their resources to Render rather than other GPU networks? Because obviously, now everyone's competing for them. So how yeah. does Render stand out? Yeah, so um, it's so interesting because there's a battle at the moment for GPUs, but that that actually doesn't really tell you the full picture. When, when you look at um, the GPU pyramid, um, you, you know, it really is a pyramid in terms of very high-end GPUs that are exceptionally costly, that are, are used for AI training. Um, think, you know, NVIDIA H200s or H100s or A100s, and um, those are scarce. Um, production of those is is probably the smallest number of all GPU production. Um, as you go down that pyramid, you know we've seen reports there are I think a billion and a half GPUs out there, and um, most of those are, are not suitable for um, training. Definitely not suitable for for other um, sort of high complex calculations. But as you go down that pyramid, there's a significant chunk in the hundreds of millions that can be used for rendering and can be used for inference and, and some other um, aspects of AI. 
Um, and, and so first, it, it's a pretty broad market out there when you look at the um, potential available GPUs for um, for at least inference and rendering. So that, that step one is it, it's barely been tapped. And um, at the stage right now, we're actually not necessarily competing for the same users. There's just a, a massive market out there. Now, the, the second point is we, we've really focused on uh, motion, graphics, motion graphics artists at the start and have built up a network um, of the size and scale that is definitely a clear leader um, for you going out to try and find a typical motion graphics consumer card, a 4090 or a 3090. So, um, you know, that has helped. And, and I think what's helped is we've got a, a demonstrated uh, model of performing, being able to successfully run jobs on those nodes, uh, security-wise, making sure they run securely, making sure they're paid out over time. So, um, you know, we're in a pole position just by the fact that we've got five years of operation um, and successfully operating. And um, I, I think also um, because we focused on that motion graphics artist community, um, a community that, that really sees the value in the integrated tool set in um, leveraging their, um, their assets um, in a way that's, that's somewhat different from the other GPUs that are out there. So th that's been our lead point, but it's not been our only point to date. And as we've brought on these new general purpose AI compute partners, we're starting to bring on different types of, of rigs beyond the motion graphics artists. And, and why they're coming on board is, um, first, we have an aggregation of compute. So it's not just one compute partner. They're going to this potentially many. We, we have you know, two on, um, voted uh, by the community to bring on board a, and a third in, in final vote. So you know, we've got 3x the potential compute of just one of them. So you've got the scale. Um, and, and then also on the rendering side, you know, we've got Octane and Redshift. Redshift. And then I, I'd say the, the final point that's probably one of the biggest drivers is today, uh, render jobs are probably the premium job in terms of paying you uh, for your resources on the GPU. Um, if you look at the pyramid, it sort of goes, um, you know, mining, which is, um, you know, challenging at present and, and at the current scale, um, you know, a, a multiple up on that to general purpose compute, and then a, a step up beyond that on rendering. So we, we have access to um, the highest uh, paying jobs on the network, as well as just such a broad range of compute, it, it makes it a, a pretty easy choice for a node or a, a GPU provider in choosing where to go. Yeah, I think that's a, that's like an interesting, maybe kind of like happy accident. Like I'm sure the, the choice to go with like a rendering based network wasn't, wasn't because it's the most profitable type of job, but it just happened to be, be so. And I think that's a yeah. good position to be in as, as like a competitor in the market. Um, right. I wanted well, to talk well a bit we about started rendering the... because AI wasn't even a, a thing on the GPU when we started. So that that's the driver. But, um, you, you know, AI has always been a part of what Otoy does and, and Jules has um, been great at, at talking about how these two will merge. So, that, you know, there's, um, I think, a, a line that gets blurred over time here. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I think that's actually a good way to transition the conversation now over to the AI side. Jules, I saw you tweet about Stability AI's new foundation model to generate videos, and you kind of hinted that this goes further than just text to video generation and that, you know, this new foundational model could actually be used to generate 3D models that could be later composed into 
different scenes. And so I, I just love to hear you kind of expand on that and, you know, how the render network could eventually or potentially participate in some of these AI jobs later down the line. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I, I have to say, you know, anyone following the AI space probably is aware, you know, things happening in the AI space change by the day or the week. I mean, it's like breakthroughs happen all the time. It's, it's, it's crazy. So I would say that this, you know, the new version of, of um, with stability put out there, you know, obviously it's great for generating, you know, short form, you know, whatever, 14 to 15 to 25 frames that give you a sort of animation loop that you can then interpolate into a, into a nice video. But the, the part that got my attention um, was the fact that it could do multi-view, right, of a, of a 3D object and coherently, you know, give you that. And the quality is very good. So this gives you the ability to type in something. And rather than getting a video, you really get back essentially a turntable render. And you can turn that into a 3D model. And that 3D model is going to look pretty good. This is the first time, you know, there's been a lot of, of you know, generative 3D model, you know, AI stuff in the past. It's not been great, you know, like it, it, you know, the shapes are blobby and paper mache. That's starting to change in the last like week or two. Um, you know, being able to sort of get decent uh, quality, you know, 3D models out of stable diffusion is going to be fantastic. There's also some really good research going on about just building CAD models out of 3D. Like build a chair, build an architectural thing, build a, take this 3D model of the room and create textures. Why all that matters to us is that I think the way that I see it and the way that a lot of our partners that are also in the generative AI, you know, artist content pipeline space look at it is that sending something to a 2D, you know, image or even a video is not the end point. You know, it's like right now, that's, that's great. But most people are going to want to have a 3D model. I mean, even the fact that the Vision Pro is a 3D OS, I mean, like 3D models are a functional part of the operating system, more so than, than an image or a web page, right? Um, and even for doing anything with that or sharing that or collaborating with that or exploring it um, or rendering it on a light field display or even on the Apple Vision Pro, you want 3D models. So text to image, text to video doesn't get you that. It's also limiting in terms of its composability. But if you can generate a decent 3D model and then you have tools that are part of a, you know, part pipeline like you have with render where you can, I mean, like we, as also showing, uh, you know, we have a GPT model that allows you to operate Octane just by telling it what to do, scattering these trees around, right? Um, and it's been trained on all the documentation, all the things that, that artists have been using for years to, to create scenes in Octane. And that's where things get super interesting. So being able to generate uh, models and also mix that with repository of high quality models that artists, you know, have created um, and then have tools that, allow you to almost, you know, out of templates, really set up a shot or a scene in 3D, that's, that's really important. We had a partner that was basically doing um, generative AI content, 60% of their workloads are just purely in the rendering part, not, not the machine learning part, which is to set up the scene and to generate those assets. So I think that that's sort of how I see the future going. You're, you're still gonna wanna render things, that's gonna become just as important as displaying a pixel on a screen those pixels will become rays of light in, you know, a, a Vision Pro or light field display, or even in a scene graph that is designed to be volumetric. And that's why I think the future of rendering mixed with the generative AI part is so interesting. You know, we're limited in how many users can maybe use their, their skill set, right? You have to learn a 3D tool like Blender or, you know, Cinema 4D or Max or Maya. Um, I think there's a lot more um, artists that can be able to tap into the world of 3D rendering even with, with Octane. And Octane is on the phone and the iPad um, as a renderer. If you had the ability to sort of describe a scene and pull together 3D models, that's one of the hardest things you know, that's out there, that and doing faces, right, in humans. And we have a lot of technology that we've been developing for years for production um, that can do really good 
face capture and and you know regeneration of faces in 3D. I think those tools together with the render network used for finalization of those assets and also provenance, like you know, if you want to prove that you created a piece of art or that it's you know how it was generated, which is really important, um, everything is hashed. I mean, it's not even the fact that the that the uh, you know proof of render is done on chain. It's that every asset, you know, every texture, every 3D file, every command is also hashed. So it's part of the receipt of the render job being done. You can prove that this frame in the Star Trek movie that was released in twenty you know twenty two was done November twenty first. 2021, and here's the uh, you know here's the piece of the Ethereum blockchain that shows it. Now we have Solana, so there's such fascinating things you can do with that. Um, and I think AI is an incredible tool, but you also need to be aware of the fact that people want to have um, you know their input as humans represented. So if you're part of you know if your data is being used to sample something, if you're you know collaborating or your data is being used in an AI piece, the fact that the render network can collate all those things and have you know proof of, of first upload, proof of creation. You know, going back basically to 2015 when we started, you know, recording these things in our own, uh, call it an internal render ledger. There's a lot of value there, um, but I think that in, even in the next year, you're going to see a massive explosion of people being able to leverage high quality rendering in 3D with a front end that's handled with a lot of the generative AI tools that are now popping up, and you know, even in this, uh, you know, the last month or so. Yeah, Jules, I'm glad you mentioned the kind of transition from Ethereum to Solana, or like kind of wanted to talk about what's what's now possible on Solana. So I think that was pretty big piece of news at, at Breakpoint a few weeks ago was uh, the the announcement of Render being kind of officially integrated with or moved over to Solana L1. Um, I mean, I think maybe for Trevor or Jules, kind of whoever wants to to take it. We talked a bit about on the, on the pre-call yesterday about doing more on-chain, having Render do more on-chain. So I wanted to explore a bit about, you know, what's uniquely possible on Solana or, or what's like some of the kind of use cases or composability that excites you all uh, now that you're part of the Solana ecosystem. I'll, I'll just give it a couple of items and then Trevor can sort of fill in other, other pieces. But I mean, you know, we, we, we've, Ethereum, we've been on Polygon, right? I mean, it's like being, the transaction costs, the gas costs were just crazy. Period. So the number of transactions that we can now do is, uh, and we're on L1, right? We're on layer one is, is amazing. And that's just been already, you know, that's thing, step number one. Step number two, the other important piece is that Tony and Raj, you know, who, who you know, created and run you know, Solana and, and the foundation have been really, you know, great partners in understanding the things that we want to do with Render, whether it was, I mean, you know, don't even just call it NFTs. We just want to have provenance on chain and build standards around that, right? That are you know, beyond just what we're doing or even Swan's doing. Um, there's a lot of work that's being done there. And uh, and there's also just, you know, the, the kinds of royalties that I foresee being paid out, you know, when people's, you know, pieces or images or likenesses, for example, are used in a render job. I mean, yeah, you want to have the kind of granularity. And I think that kind of complexity is something that Solana is great for. Um, and there's a lot of other pieces. I mean, I'll let Trevor sort of you know, chime in on the rest, but those are some of the ones that just popped in my head at the very top of why we're excited. And it's been a long time coming. We spent a couple of years working towards this this transition. Yeah, yeah, Jules hit it there. I mean, for, for us, um, the low cost, high throughput is really exciting because it, it opens up um, avenues that we haven't thought of or been able to um, go after before. And, and a lot of that comes down to the original vision of proof of render of a provenance on chain. Um, and, and when we look at Solana specifically, um, things like compressed NFTs um, really do excite us because there's a lot of data 
associated with these vendors. So um, being able to do them in an efficient way um, on chain um, really does open up that public proof avenue and, and opens up revenue streams, opens up so much more than um, we've been able to get to to date. Um, yeah, it, it's going to be really exciting as we look out the next year at um, yeah, the, the additions we can put on chain for the network and, and really utilizing the, the value that's only possible on Solana. I'm sure you guys saw recently the M3, the new Apple chipset, but it seems like there was a heavy focus there on optimizing um, that chipset. Have one for- right here. Oh, let's go. <laughs> go. Uh, lucky man. But yeah, so th- th- that chipset is uniquely positioned to just be very powerful when it comes to rendering. Uh, and something I thought that was also interesting is that, you know, Octane, the software is tailored for just Apple silicon chipsets in general. And so do you think it's feasible for devices like, you know, the iPad and MacBooks and iPhones in the future to be nodes on the render network or kind of like what is the vision um, between like some type of synergy between these Apple um, products or chipsets and the render network? Yeah, well, I mean, listen, here's my iPhone 15 rendering Octane as fast as, by the way, an M1. So the iPhone 15, well, it doesn't have an M3 in it. It does have the three nanometer, um, you know, process that was used for the same, you know, M3 that's in the MacBook Pro. And it's crazy because that, you know, when, when the MacBook Air first came out, right, the M1 came out and both the, and later the iPad, this phone is faster than that. So I have in my in my hand right now, a GPU that is desktop class has got eight gigs of video memory. I mean, this this basically is, you know, on par with the kinds of GPUs that we were sort of, um, you know, putting on the network back in 2017, you know, that we're, you know and that users were using in 2015. Uh, and there's also something interesting about the, uh, you know, like this laptop, for example, right? 128 gigs of video memory, of unified memory. You know, you, you go to the uh, whatever the, the highest end NVIDIA GPU has got 80 gigs. Uh, you can chain them together with NVLink, but you know, this is what Apple has is something pretty remarkable. So, the fact that if you want to run a job that requires a lot of memory, the fact that there's going to be millions of these, uh, you know, MacBook Pros and, and just even Mac Studios that are out there, those are absolutely interesting for us as, as render nodes. I mean, certainly for processing jobs that are uh, memory constrained, I mean, th- these are great. And the fact that, you know, the scale of, of the iPhone, I mean, there's probably, you know, we can run, you know, octane render job probably about on a you know, several hundred billion iPhones. It goes all the way back to the iPhone 11. But just the millions of iPhone 15s that are going to have a high-end M1 class GPU, um, you know, with eight, eight, you know, eight gigs. I mean, it's, it's remarkable what can be done when you leave something like that overnight. Same thing with the iPad. I mean, people are used to leaving their, their systems, um, you know, charging or, or in idle state. And the sheer quantity of those uh, devices is is really interesting. So we do have, um, you know, an app, you know, for, for you know, as I was showing on the phone and the iPad and the Mac App Store. Um, and obviously that can render anything. So if, they, if we were to connect that app to the render network and start pulling down jobs and, and paying people for that time, um, you know, for sure that could be done. And, and you know, Apple's been, you know, a great collaborative partner for years. They've, we've been featured in four of their keynotes and all the marketing, that the marketing for the M3 on the Apple webpage, you know, picture of, you know, the Octane Render app. Um, and so I do think that most Apple users um, are going to want to use the Render Network because Apple, the way they set up, you have one pretty good GPU now on, on these systems. But if you want to have more rendering power, unlike on a PC, 
you can't ex expand that, right? You can't put two GPUs in any Apple system, even that Mac Pro is only one, you know, one M series chip. Um, but the render network, the reason it works well is if you have a thousand frames or 2000 frames under one minute render 30 frames a second, and there's 2000, you know, GPUs out there, you can basically get the um, two thousand know, one minute render done for the cost of rendering a frame, right? Which could be, um, you know, a minute or something. And that kind of power is, is amazing. So there's a lot of, of increased latent power that we're seeing in the Apple ecosystem. And, you know, we've been very carefully thinking about that strategy, obviously on the, on the app store side of things, on the iPhone and the iPad, um, even though our app has been featured by Apple many times, you know, turning that on for, for being able to process jobs means, you know, thinking about battery life, thinking about what happens when the app's in the background. But we've been working on this for, for so long now that I think there's absolutely a path for that to happen. And in fact, I mean, there's probably things that Apple has done, you know, they use Octane, right? That's one of the things that, that's been interesting. Um, yeah, their artists use it. In fact, the, the render that was on the Apple webpage was some internal, you know, team at Apple. Um, I mean, I think the render network's useful for their work as well. So I kind of feel like that's going to be something that um, is going to be a really great uh, addition to the, uh, to the system. And some of the, you know, the issues with the highest end GPUs not having enough memory is totally solved. Um, and the M3 does have, you know, yeah, equivalent of tensor cords, right? Things that are designed for neural processing. I mean, you know, there's a lot of rumors swirling around that, you know, iOS 18 is going to have, you know, a GPD or generative AI system built in. Um, so it's in Apple's best interest to sort of develop, um, you know, hardware that can do a lot of the uh, AI processing work. You know, they were one of the first companies to take Stable Diffusion and make sure it was ported and worked correctly on Apple devices, right? Even though it's not their software. So, um, so for sure, there's, there's an interesting, you know, th things to be done there. And I also foresee that, you know, there's going to be a sort of a duopoly. NVIDIA on the very high end, but I think Apple on, and, you know, in terms of their footprint on the low end and, and in terms of the volumes, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty wild. And the phone being at the state where it's at now uh, is, is incredible. I mean, an M1 in a phone, I don't think people quite realize how fast the iPhone 15 Pro is. And that's only going to keep, keep getting better from here, I think, uh, especially with things like ray tracing hardware also in the phone that can speed up significantly the kinds of rendering um, that can be done on top of the increased core count and other things that are in that chip. Yeah, Trevor, one thing I wanted to to kind of I guess say out loud or think about for our audience is like kind of the way like a, a simple way that I've thought about to kind of segment the decentralized compute industry of, of which you guys are a part is kind of general purpose and, and fit for purpose projects. So I think like Bitensor, Akash, those type of projects are more general general purpose and renders obviously more fit for purpose. Um you're now kind of vertically integrating a bit to have like AI and machine learning related compute workloads, you know, be able to be serviced from, from the render platform. But instead of building that in-house, you're partnering with, with third-party clients like IO.net, Beam, FedML. Um, so, I mean, I think those, those three partnerships have been announced very recently. Just curious yeah. a bit on the, the rationale behind partnering yeah. versus building that in-house. Sure. So the, the community, we're, we're really good in this. Um, you, you know, Otoy is a market leader in um, motion graphics software. And um, it, it's been phenomenal in having Otoy help drive the render network to this point by being that market leader. And as we looked at the emergence of AI, um, we, we realized um, it was broader than just motion graphics artists. 
And I, I think that was the, the key realization and the key determinant around the, the vote we went through um, was we really thought we should probably look for um, the market leaders on uh, decentralized uh, general compute and um, partner with them and, and bring that same um, experience uh, to the platform in, in a way that probably wasn't possible from within uh, Otoy itself. However, that, that being said, as Jules has pointed to, Otoy will continue to add AI jobs to its Octane workflow. And I, I think these will merge. But, you know, it, for, for the community, it seemed to be, you know, what's out there beyond motion graphics artists. And that's probably the, the biggest driver that's drawn um, these partners towards us is, uh, you know, unique experiences. If you look at IONet, it's, you know, really um, doing some amazing things with Ray and, and orchestration. Um, Beam um, giving users a little bit more control of exactly which GPUs rather than orchestration. And then on, on the FedML side, uh, using a, a um, technique called federated um, training and, and learning that's um, you know, got a lot of amazing papers written about it. And, and all three of those are, are unique, different, and, and groundbreaking. And, and so for us, that's really what we're looking for is you know, trying to find those partners out there who are doing things differently um, and for a different target user um, than the motion graphics artist. Trevor, I just kind of want to chime in there. So you're talking about how the average opera, uh, GPU provider is typically from like the motion graphics community. And so they, for the most part, have these like RTX 3090s, 4090s, and so on. So it's not really these um, AI purposed uh, GPUs. But we still have networks like right. IONet, Beam, FedML that are still tapping into the GPU reservoir that Render has. So how, is, how does that work, though? It, are these GPUs, you know, if you're running them in parallel and if you have a lot of them, do they become equal to, say, like an A100 or an H100 at some point? Yeah. I'll take yeah, it for, so, for so this is, yeah, go for it, Jules. He's, he's really good. Well, I was, I was going to say, I mean, Trav, you know, Trevor probably, yeah. you know, is going to say the same thing. You know, what's interesting is that a ton of AI jobs don't need an A100 or an H100. In fact, I mean, you know, if you're looking at anything like, like, you know, something like Stable Diffusion or things like Runway ML or those kinds of things, I mean, even the training data sets aren't pushing you towards that, you know, that very high end. So for that, a 4090 is perfectly fine. You know, there's, there's a ton of, you know, and we have, hundreds of thousands, you know, we have a million GPUs on the waitlist. I mean, there's just a huge number of consumer GPUs that are perfectly suitable for, I would say, a ton of, of AI workloads, especially fine tuning, right? But also anything probably in the media and generative AI space. I mean, LLMs training those things, you know, on, on $100 million of, of, of hardware or, or compute costs, you know, that, that, you know, that OpenAI is doing and, and, and others. I mean, those are obviously, you know, pretty big you know, requirements. And that's where the H100s are absolutely necessary. But, you know, as I was saying, I mean, the A100s, uh, you know, which is, you know, you can put 16 of those in a, in a box on, on PCP. Um, you know, they have 40 to 80 gigs. Yes, you can emulate those together, but a lot of jobs can fit within a 48 gigabyte threshold or even a 24 gigabyte threshold that's on a 3090. And I, I don't think that, you know, you have to have an A100 or an H100 to fulfill probably 80 to 90% of the workloads that I think people are going to want to run for training and in inference, it's like, I mean, yeah, clearly that's something that can run on, on almost any hardware um, that's on the network today for, for the most part. So, 
I do think that that's where there's, there's an interest in our part in offering a lot of those 4090s and 3090s that we have on the network um, towards any sort of AI workloads that, can, you know, that our partners can come up with. But I also wanted to sort of speak to the fact that there's a lot of work being done, uh, both at the Render Network Foundation and Otoy itself around first party AI, you know, jobs that are going to be blended in seamlessly with rendering. I mean, that to me is why I, I want to, you know, I think we need to get to that point where that becomes clear. And that's where generative AI that feeds into the rendering pipeline, um, even LLMs that feed into a rendering pipeline. If there's anything that's sort of media or visual related, this is where those things connect. That's where the render network as it is, is going to really have um, a lot more of, of the AI workload sort of blended in with the rendering side of things. But in the meantime, I mean, even on renders, right? I mean, we support third-party renders other than the Octane. You can, you know, we have maps on, there's uh, the ability to load in any hybrid render delegate, which means any third party can build a renderer. Uh, and there's even workloads that you can run around that. So I think that those things all converge. But to Trevor's point, I mean, there's some really unique um, domain expertise is being done by the partners that we've brought on, and we don't want to not have the render network be utilized for those things. I mean, it is meant to be an open system where um, you can add any service you want on there. And, you know, the point of, of the foundation is to figure out how to make all that work. And Ochoa's contribution is to come up with clever ways where we can, you know, build software and services on top of that layer to make something that really is uh, a benefit to, to creators and content creators in particular, you know, versus, um, just pure general purpose jobs that require a different degree of, of um, you know, service and, and customer orientation. Yeah. So um, adding, I mean, the the node operators that we have to date are not necessarily the node operators of the future. So as we um, add AI compute clients, I think you'll see us adding more um, powerful um, AI type nodes onto the network. Um, it just makes sense. But those are scarce at the moment. I mean, there's there's an absolute battle for those. If you can get your hands on one, I think the wait list is six months, right? And and so regardless of that, you, you're seeing people having to come up with solutions around that because um, there just isn't access to them. And, and you know, Federated is, is an interesting one. There was a, a meta paper on how they do it that um, is really interesting on, on the techniques to, to really use distributed GPUs uh, in a way that can equate towards a, a centralized model. Um, so, you know, it's really exciting watching um, the um, broader AI ecosystem solve for the, the problem that isn't going to go away in terms of, um, you know, scarcity of very high-end GPUs. Um, the other thing is, um, Jules is right, it's it's almost, it's more than 80-20 when you look at um, the large players on how much uh, GPU time is spent training versus inference. The vast majority is inference. And inference can be done on um, our types of nodes. And um, th so that's really where um, we see the, the immediate opportunity. And, and then, you know, as we bring on different nodes and, and as the um, scarcity of um, those high-end um, nodes changes, you'll, you'll see them become part of the fabric of the network. Amazing. Well, this has been a great conversation, guys. I just want to say a big thank you for coming on and sharing a lot of insight with our listeners. Where would you like to point our listeners to, whether it's, you know, your personal socials or, um, you know, a company website or so on? Uh, definitely follow the Render Network on Twitter, at Render Network. Um, I'm at Jules Rivet on Twitter. Um, and that's a great place to start. I mean, actually, it's called X now. That's right. It's still adjusting. To <laughs> I'll never, I'll ones, never call uh, it X. I'm, I'm, I'm staying with Twitter 
forever. I also still yeah. balance forever. How about you, yeah. Trevor? Yeah, we have a, a pretty a pretty active um, X um, group uh, as well as Telegram, um, and uh, I think there's there's always some some more depth in our Telegram group in terms of um, engaging um, with with you know members of the Otoy team. So it's exciting there. Uh, my Twitter is um, at Dr. Jones SF. Perfect. All right. Thanks again, guys. Really enjoyed this.